Well, welcome back. As we uh, head into Hour 2, it's a delight to do so, as we uh, usually do on Thursdays, with our good friend Sam Stone. He is a political consultant in town, among other things. He also hosts, co-hosts the Breaking Battlegrounds show, heard here every Saturday afternoon on 960 The Patriot. It's a great show, great guests, great political discussions, and um, kind of my Greek uh, Greek chorus when it comes to politics and policy. He also is welcome to t- uh, welcoming of your phone calls if you uh, want to talk with uh, Sam and myself. Our number is 602-508-0960. We're going to cover the world, I think, literally. Sam, welcome back. How are you doing, man? I'm doing good, Seth. Thank you for having me. You betcha, as always. I want to talk to you about something I was kind of discussing with the audience uh, in my previous hour with this uh, Trump-DeSantis uh, battle that's taking place. But before we do that, uh, you, I know, are not only well-equipped to talk about domestic politics, you um, you have a particular insight on certain things going on around the world um, from a particular perspective as well. Talk to us a little bit about what you're seeing right now with the goings-on, Middle East, et cetera. We are actually witnessing, I mean, a seismic shift, a, a continental shift in world politics right now. And it's getting buried on the back page of newscasts. It's not being covered. Most people don't even understand or realize that it's happened. Um, and the first domino that fell was a deal uh, brokered by China to uh, restore diplomatic relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia, between essentially the two power poles of the Sunni-Shia conflict in Islam. That is an enormous sea change in Middle Eastern policy. And literally within a day of, of that happening, we're there rumblings right now of a rapprochement between Saudi and Syria being brokered by Russia. This comes on the heels of uh, President Xi's trip to Moscow to meet with the Russians and with Vladimir Putin. Uh, folks, be paying attention to this. Uh, Seth and, and everyone in the audience out there, look, this is and this is being done entirely without the U.S. This is a, a sea change in the Middle East, and there are some enormous financial implications underlying this. Yeah. As I'm watching this take place, Sam, I um – my first thought is, boy, there's a vacuum of American leadership right now, which is allowing some of this. I'm thinking there's a vacuum of American leadership that is pushing some of this. Um, and it seems to me that it, the vacuum of leadership is making America, in many respects, less and less relevant on the world stage. Um, and... When you see – I had a guest on earlier in the week talking a little bit about the Saudi Arabia-Iran situation. I, I liked the way he framed it. I'd, I'd love your thought on it. He said, Iran is an enemy. Saudi Arabia is not a friend. That was the category um, mm-hmm. he put him in. Iran is an enemy. Saudi Arabia is not a friend. And our bumbling and stumbling has now united them. And we have now united an enemy with not a friend. That's exactly right. And you, Russia is in the middle yes. of two other enemies right. uniting enemies with not a friend. Mm-hmm. And that not a friend is really a critical player, obviously, on the global stage because of oil. Um, you know, look, let's go back a, a couple of steps. 
part of this is that they are looking to start trading oil in rubles and rand. Right. And when they do that, that is an enormous change. It's likely the, the, the domino that falls next that leads to the U.S. dollar not being the world's reserve currency. Right. The moment that happens, every American takes a 15% haircut to yeah. their standard of living instantly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a huge deal. Secondly, we are now dependent once again on foreign oil. Mm-hmm. And we're putting control of the world's richest oil fields whether it's in Venezuela, whether it's in the Middle East, they're in the hands of our enemies. So we're in the position, uh, much like you know Japan was in World War II, where our enemies have control of our economy. And we are really limited. The, 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 the need to get back to opening up American oil exploration and and re, you know building a big bottleneck here, which people don't realize is building the uh, factories and conversion uh, chambers and all that kind of thing to refine it. Um, that hasn't really, EPA hasn't allowed that to happen on our shores for many years. That needs to happen. Pipelines, transport, we have to start looking at oil because I don't care how much everyone wants to Tesla their way down the highway. Um, the fact of the matter is we're going to need American oil for 100 plus years and we're putting ourselves in a, an incredibly dangerous position right now with what's going on in the world. The analysis I can't wrap my hands around fully, Sam, is when you look at this presidency, and when I say this presidency, it's more than just Joe Biden. I mean, he may actually be the least relevant person in this presidency um, because I just don't think he's in control and i don't think he's in possession of all the faculties no, I, I, I don't i think jill biden and a bunch of other people yeah there there's a co- there's a cadre and 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 he's the least relevant to it uh, probably at the end of the day the question i i can't really fully grasp hold of is is this because of a vacuum of his ability to be a leader on the world stage or and i think this is equally bad do you think that there's this leftist effort coming to the fore in 1600 Pennsylvania that always wanted America to be diminished, never thought America should be as strong on the world stage as it is? They don't like the notion of American greatness. They don't like the notion what we used to call American exceptionalism. Uh, Barack Obama certainly kicked off his presidency with an apology tour for our for our strength over the decades prior to his presidency. Is this ideological or is it leadership vacuity? Well, it's, it's both. But in being both, it's frenetic, right? Like no. we're trying to show strength by sending a vast sum of money to Ukraine and stymieing Russia's interest there. Um, well, at the same time, we are essentially pulling back from the Middle East. We are abdicating leadership on the global political stage, and our enemies are taking advantage of it. It's opportunism, and, you know, I mean, it's it's smart on their part, let's yeah, be honest. of course. Uh, they're doing things that make a ton of sense for their countries and their future. Um, we so aren't. That's the problem. We we're not. That's, yeah, right. That's exactly it. Right. In, in either case, we, we're not really – I mean, if we're going to help Ukraine – and let's be clear that our goal is to help Ukraine win the war, which we haven't done, um, or we, we shouldn't be helping them. I mean, those are really the two poles when you're dealing with military action and anything in between is a disaster, as history has proven over and over and over. 
So there's that on the one hand, and then there's what's happening in the Middle East. And, you know, there's some signals that we're there to protect Taiwan, but we can't get very serious about it. Joe Biden will come out and just say, hey, if if China goes after Taiwan, we're going to be there. You're going to be fighting us. Uh, That's the kind of statement that would create pause. But they're not willing to go there. And I think what you're seeing is leadership by committee, which is always a very weak form of leadership. And right now, the the U.S. is a target for all of our global enemies. And they are taking pieces off of us as fast as they can. I think Ukraine, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is about our withdrawal from Afghanistan. And I think if we allow Ukraine to completely fall and collapse to Russia, Taiwan will be the result. I, I'm not disagreeing with that. My, my point there is simply that if you're going to get involved in a war, then the goal leader has to be to win it. Uh, win right, it right, right. Or, right. or, or you shouldn't be there. Right. And, and again, we keep making that mistake with our foreign interventions, yep. right? I yep. mean, we've done that over and over and over yep. now since the 1960s. Yep. This is exactly what Ronald Reagan said in the late 1960s when he first dipped his toes into the waters of running for president in 1968. He said, if we're going to be in Vietnam, then we should be in there to win it and win it convincingly. And if we're not in it to win it convincingly, we shouldn't be there at all. Seems to me pretty smart. Well, I think that's exactly right. Reagan was obviously very, very savvy political operator on the international stage, and he said it perfectly. I, I can't say anything better than that, but I will add, you know, you go back, I think, like 1975, right around when I was born. Had you lined up every bulldozer in the United States, blade to blade, right. they would have stretched across the entire length of Vietnam. Yep. Not the width, the right. narrow, yep. the length. Yep. So clearly, had we wanted to go win that, we could have. Yep. And, and you keep running into these same things. Yep. We don't commit, and and then we end up with a generational drain on our national resources and our psyche, and things that make our enemies look at us and say, "Well, we can we can do that to them." Too. That's right. That's right. And I don't think people quite remember how bad we felt about ourselves, not just within the U.S. military, anyone in the military at the time will validate this, but how bad we felt our, about ourselves as a country after the way we ended the 1975 evacuation of Saigon. Sam, let me take a quick commercial break. We'll come back with a lot more. Sam Stone is my guest. Breaking Battlegrounds is a show heard every Saturday afternoon at 3. You don't want to ever miss it. And we'll take your calls at 602 Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Sam Stone is my guest. Uh, He is the co-host of Breaking Battlegrounds. You can hear it every Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. here. It's a show you don't want to miss. Political consultant in town. And um, Sam, I have questions for you, but uh, you and I always think the most important voices are listeners and callers. We've got some calls for you. You want to to hear from some of our audience? Oh, heck yeah. Let's Let's do it. it. Let's start with uh, Tony in Scottsdale. Bill, I need your help on this, I think. Thank you. Tony, you're on with me and Sam Stone. Welcome. Hey, uh, good afternoon, guys. Hey, uh, Sam, uh, as a side note, I just wanted to tell you that uh, I've made a lot of political contributions over the years, uh, and I made a small one to your campaign, and I wish I could have done more for you. 
you are the first politician to ever call me back and thank me for a uh, contribution. Wow. Well, Tony, no, thank you again. And, and I tried to call everyone who contributed, and, and thank you so much for that. Your support really yeah. does mean a lot. Yeah, yeah. When you run again, and if you're in my district, I'll absolutely be voting for you. I appreciate it. That's uh, nice so, of you, Tony. Thank you. So, Those things matter, Sam. Yeah. Sam, thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Tony. You bet. So, uh, so I just, I just want to know your thoughts. Um, so, I, I'm a huge Hewitt guy. Early in the mornings, and I'm, I'm a big believer in that we need to do more in terms of beefing up our navy, especially in this environment that we're in right now. We absolutely need to be doing more to beef up our navy. And we absolutely need to be doing more to bring manufacturing back of all types, whether it be medical manufacturing, uh, uh, vehicle manufacturing, all kinds of manufacturing. We, we, it, is, it is a critical nature for our country and for our own protection that we bring a lot of these, this manufacturing back into our country. And I, I just wanted to get your thoughts, and uh, if it's okay, I'll, I'll, I'll take your answer, my answer off the air. Thanks, Tony. Sam, uh, hard to argue with any of that, really. Oh, I, I'm not even going to come close to arguing with that. Look, we probably need to almost double the size of the Navy, and one of the big tragedies of, of recent years of naval attempts at buildup is they keep spending money on these advanced weapon systems um, like the literal combat ships that don't work. Mm. So stop. Build the stuff that we already know we can build and build it out and build it up. But you have a huge barrier right now in recruitment. I was just reading a piece yesterday. Only 25% of the U.S. Yep. population under 25 yep. uh, qualifies for military service, and only 9% are willing to serve. Yep. So they are drawing uh, lake police from a very depleted pool. Um, and I think you're starting to get back into the areas where we really need to consider, even if it's not in every person draft, although I, I think two years of service would be good for everybody. Um, we may have to reinstitute something along those lines, which well, many other countries have. Yeah, we're, well, we're going to have to get a healthier uh, recruitment base. Uh, we're going to have to talk seriously about not only uh, mental but also the physical health of those who are of recruitment age. That's a big, huge part of it. But Aside from that, you know, Sam, you and I are a little bit different in age, but we both grew up in somewhat separate times where I recall big pushes toward military recruitment, whether it was at my high school or whether it was at the college campus. That's just gone, too. That, I, 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 you know, that's just that's just a that's just reasons, a huge vacuum here. Well, a lot of the reasons, frankly, is that these ultra liberal uh, I, I'm going to stop from myself from using the word I was about to use uh, about our school leaders yeah. are actually not allowing military right. recruiters right. on the high school and right. college campuses, right. uh, just like they're not allowing police recruiters right. on the high school and college campuses. Right. And um, these people are they're, they're not merely wrong. What they're doing is dangerous yep. for everybody, yep. and it is an, an enormous disservice to this society. I don't know if it was every other or every other other or every fifth person I knew in high school when we were talking about you know future plans as juniors or maybe even early parts of the senior year. But it was palpable that people I knew, you know, whether it was every other or every fourth or fifth person, men. Uh, in those days, you know, they said, well, I'm thinking of going, joining the military. They, they, that, you just don't hear that kind of chatter anymore. You just don't yeah, hear it. Probably about a fifth of the kids I grew up with yeah. uh, on the yeah. male side. And, and like 
a, a 20, a, you know, one out of 20 or something right. on the final side. And those numbers would be wildly ahead of, of where they are yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thank you. Uh, that was a nice uh, call, uh, Tony. Um, Dan in Chandler. Dan, you're on with Sam Stone. Dan, are you there? Dan, going once? There you are. <laughs> That's why I do that. Sold. Dan, you're on with Sam Stone and me. How are you? Hi. I, I agree with everything that's been said so far, but uh, one aspect of this uh, is, is, that hasn't been discussed is Israel. Um, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia, I would agree, is not a friend, but they have been a useful partner at times. Mm-hmm. And one of the greatest accomplishments of the Trump administration that has been utterly destroyed by this this idiotic administration was the Abraham Accords. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we had a situation where uh, Israel had uh, some tacit alliances of convenience uh, that would align against the Iranians, certainly the Iranian uh, creation and use of a nuclear weapon. And now that's all gone. And I'm really concerned that without this unified front against Iran, Israel may feel forced to take a desperate move against Iran uh, in terms of their, um, you know, building a, a, a nuclear weapon. And uh, there's just so many awful things happening as, as, a, as a result of, of the Biden administration. Um, I have to believe he is the worst president in the history of the United States and could be leading us toward uh, the entire world, toward another dark age. I tend to, and I'll let Sam answer on the other side of the break because we're heading towards one. Uh, Thank you for your call. I tend to think in polarities. I tend to think, excuse me, in um, forces of composition and forces of decomposition. That can be institutions, it can be candidates, it can be policies, it can be movements, and it can be countries. And when you look at the Middle East, there are not a lot of forces of composition. And one of the things I think you were right to underscore about the Trump administration with those Abraham Accords was that it was probably the greatest foreign policy achievement since the destruction of the Soviet Union without firing a shot, to use Margaret Thatcher's parlance. Let me go to break real quick. That's my thought, Dan. And you're right. It, it is all falling apart. Uh, and, and we'll get Sam Stone's take uh, when we come back. Let me put in a word for our friends at the Midas Gold Group. With so many cracks showing up in the banking system and over $31 trillion in U.S. debt, you can't just say print more money anymore. This has been the experience of Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Argentina. They all tried this. You know what, though? Gold has never defaulted, and the veteran-owned Midas Gold Group will reinforce your portfolio. Give them a call to look into safeguarding your money with the stability of gold while you still can. I trust them. Seb Gorka does. Thousands of you already do. And gold does hold its value when economies fail. You think about the Silicon Valley Bank, Signature, Credit Suisse. Midas Gold Group believes we're in the early stages of a growing crisis, and the Fed's higher interest rates are your cue to create your own bank with real money. That's gold. Check them out at MidasGoldGroup.com. That's MidasGoldGroup.com. Or better yet, give them a call at 480-360-3000. 480-360-3000. Gold, you can hold your vault of confidence.
Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Sam Stone is my guest. He is a political consultant in town and the co-host of Breaking Battlegrounds. You can hear it every Saturday afternoon at 3 p.m. Must listening. Sam, so Dan and Chandler was calling and wanted to get your thoughts as you were surveying the new alignments and the rest of foreign and international policy and defense policy, your thoughts on effects on Israel. Well, first, Dan, thank you for the comment and question, because you're spot on. I think I've said in this show before, Seth, that I think Jared Kushner deserves a Nobel Peace Prize yeah. for what he did in, yeah. in the Abraham Accords. I, I think maybe more than almost anybody who's received it in the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. It's a it's a crime that he wasn't awarded that. But um, I think it is very, very concerning if you're Israel. Uh, Israel is a true ally of, of us and of the West, but obviously they have to be on pins and needles right now because they're being put in a very difficult position. Um, how this affects their relationship with Saudi going forward is a huge question, and then it does increase the likelihood that they will take unilateral military action um, which we haven't seen there now in, in well over a decade. I think it was a little over a decade ago during Obama's time that yep. they engaged in a an airstrike against uh, nuclear development facilities yep. in Iran. Yep. Uh, so, you know, it, will that happen again? If I had to bet, I would bet yes. That's the thing that we have pushed. And now, I mean, you think about this, just think about the polarities of that, that word again, the polarities of what was accomplished through those Abraham Accords. We had united uneasy allies like Saudi Arabia. I don't know if it was. Yeah, I think it was Dan who said, you know, that, that they were useful to us. No problem with having people who aren't friends who are useful to us. This is uh, this was the great distinction Jim Kirkpatrick made between autocracies and dictatorships that we allied and didn't ally with. But when you think about the Abraham Accords, we took these uneasy relationships, let us say Saudi Arabia, and we brought them in from the cold with allies or true friends uh, in other countries, in this case in the Middle East with Israel. And, 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 and to, to just blow that off, to completely blow that off in an effort to somehow reestablish ties with the Iranian regime for reasons that I can think of that make no sense, none other than except for the fact that this is what Trump did, will do the opposite. There has been no effort, no forward effort from the Republic of Iran to try and ally with us. There has been no effort from the Republic of Iran to open up with the IAEA. There has been no effort from the Republic of Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, to Cersei's its uh, funding of Hezbollah or its operations in Syria. There has been no effort whatsoever that would have encouraged any U.S. president or any sane person to try and reach out again, not only with the normalcy of relations, but with the showering of additional billions and billions of dollars to them. It makes literally no sense to fund an enemy. And that's exactly what this administration has done. But worse than that, it has not only funded an enemy, it has funded an enemy of our allies, and it has taken an alliance of ours and reshuffled it to ally with this enemy because it has seen an uncertain trumpet from our own administration. It is the worst of all worlds, literally the worst of all worlds in foreign policy, Sam. It is, and, and one of the things underlying this, by the way, that I, I don't think many people in the West are paying attention to, is that Saudi Arabia has been engaged in a proxy war of their own yep. for a decade now. Yep. And they're burning up a lot of troops, yep. a lot of munitions, yep. all those things. 
uh, weapon systems that they can get very, very quickly from China. I mean, literally just send China the cash, China sends you the weapons. Yep. The same thing from the U.S. is a months and months and years long process. Yep. And so, you know, this is making the world entirely more dangerous in so many ways. There are two countries on this planet, um, well, three with North Korea, but as inept as they are, and quite frankly, under the heel of the Chinese as they are, they're less unpredictable than these other two. There are two countries I fear the most having uh, nuclear weapons, one which does and, and Iran being the other. Um, one is Pakistan, yep. because it's always a very unstable yep. situation. We basically bought and paid for their military yep. to maintain their nuclear arsenal. And, they mean, and that's what we're doing. But that's a very unstable situation. And you can see radical regime change there resulting in it. Um, if you remember the George Clooney movie, I, 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 Nicole Kidman, I'm forgetting the title of it from years ago, yeah. um, where they're searching the world for some stolen Russian right, nuclear weapons. Right, right. She has a great line. I'm not afraid of the person who a dozen nukes. I'm terrified of the person who only wants one. Yep. Those are the two countries yep. that you could see handing a nuclear weapon to the kind of person who only wants one. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, let me talk to you about some domestic politics when we come back, Sam Stone. Sam Stone is my guest. Baking Battlegrounds is his show. It's heard here every Saturday afternoons at 3. He and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson Show. Folks, how do you think the Biden administration is handling the economy with the banks failing and stock market volatility and a possible recession on the horizon? What if you could invest in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return not correlated to the stock market or the Fed? It's a portfolio where you'll know what each monthly statement will look like with no surprises. You can turn your monthly income on. You can turn it off. You can compound it, whatever you like, and no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. It's a secure collateralized portfolio that delivers a high fixed interest rate. Check out my friends at Y Refi if this interests you. They are local. You can visit with them. I know them well. My guest Sam Stone knows them well and likes them just as much as I do. They're trustworthy and honest. You won't get a sales pitch. Why Refi is a due diligence approved firm. You can earn up to ten and a quarter percent rate of return. That's right, a ten point two five percent fixed rate of return. Just log into investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y R E F Y dot com. Or give them a call at eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. Eight 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 Y Refi thirty four. Sam Stone is my guest, among other things. He is the host of uh, he is the co host of the Breaking Battleground show, heard every Saturday afternoons here at three. Sam, this is probably the week the uh, Republican presidential primary began in earnest, uh, with the interview that we have seen excerpts from. Uh, but uh, I guess we'll air a little bit later this evening with uh, Ron DeSantis and Piers Morgan. Any thoughts? Yeah, uh, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> the, the, we are in the ring. <laughs> this is going to get nasty. Yeah. I mean, this is going to get really nasty. Yeah. Because unlike uh, the field that Trump ran against in 2016, Ron DeSantis is a fighter, yeah. and he's gonna he's gonna throw punches of his own. Uh, you've seen him now come out and start doing that. This race is gonna get ugly. Uh, Trump 
without a doubt is praying for the Alvin Bragg, the New York DA, to indict him because that would be an absolute mockery of our justice system. And I, I think almost any reasonable thinking person would see it, which would certainly bolster him. Um, you know, for DeSantis, now it, it's about pinning Trump on COVID. He's clearly going to be targeting that as well as Trump's character. Um, boy, this one could get real interesting real fast. And, and I will say that DeSantis doesn't have the feel for populism that Trump does. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I know that he's the governor of Florida, but he is running for president mm-hmm. no matter what anyone says. Mm-hmm. He should have got his butt up to Palestine, Ohio, like Trump did. Yeah. Um, you know, he should have been doing these kind of things. And, and, you know, I think the criticism of him sitting back and not not speaking out on this Alvin Bragg thing is legitimate because I actually have a piece up uh, on Breaking Battlegrounds. You can find it on our Substack or at BreakingBattlegrounds.vote uh, titled Kangaroo Courts, talking a little bit about this. And, you know, what we're seeing is really a nadir in the American justice system right now where it's being politicized and weaponized. And it's frankly, I think the weaponization of our justice system and our intelligence agencies ought to be a far bigger story um, than even the election stuff, because fixing elections is really simple. Just clean your bloody voter rolls. Um, If you do that, 99 percent of the problem's gone. So just do that. Um, This other stuff. This is really deep-seated where we've seen now via the Twitter files that there is and has been this huge ongoing conspiracy against uh, Donald Trump and, and against, frankly, I think it would be weaponized against any Republican candidate at this point. And that is a really scary thing. I mean, you're, that's junk to politics. Is there a potential, Sam, that this primary become so bloody, and you're right, in 2016, the other candidates that Trump went after didn't quite know how to throw a punch back. Ron is it, Ron is is flexing some of those muscles. Is is there a potential here that it's going to further divide the party, or do you think that this is going to be I don't know a primary that I, I it wouldn't be like any other primary because these are two gladiators and they are two titans but do you think it's going to be one of these races where we so bloody our own noses that we walk into a general weekend uh or so bloody that they can't at the end of the day get together and support whoever the ultimate victor is well we just saw that right here in arizona okay. uh, you know with with the governor's race in particular and yeah i am very concerned about that um you know i I will say this. My biggest concern about Trump doesn't actually have to do with Trump, but to do with a lot of Trump supporters. I, I'm going to step out on a little bit of a limb here. Okay, but, that's all right. But cult of <laughs> personality yeah. make me very uncomfortable. Yeah. And it's not even Trump doing this, but it's there's a cadre of his support that is. And, you know, I've got to say, look, I, I like Donald Trump. I like Ron DeSantis. I would prefer them over anybody else except maybe Christy Nome, who I'd put in that same category um, because of her response to COVID. Yeah. You know, I, but whoever the nominee is, I'm going to be behind them 100%. Of course. And I'm going to be really happy to have them. Yes. Um, we all need to understand that I don't care how bloody a primary is. If we can't all agree that we're on the same team, this is how you get a Joe Biden. This yeah. is how you get a Katie Hobbs. Yeah. This is how you get, uh, a, you know, and these really awful, incompetent Democrats, 
And I'm sorry. I don't care what your division is within our party or how much you, you know, you think it should be your person versus this person. That all is, goes out the window when you're dealing with this. We are dealing with a, a, a Democrat party that has lost its bloody mind. Yeah, I I agree with that. And I'll just I'll put a little color into the into the I don't know what the analogy is. Uh, let me let me walk out on the limb with you and tell you something that's kind of new to me or new for me, new for me, at least like you. Uh, I go around and give talks here and there, different groups, civic, political, otherwise. This is the first time last I would say last two years. First time I've noticed something different in these rooms. <clears throat> time was I could be openly um, honest and critical of my team players on my team, as well as obviously praiseworthy because they are my teammates. I like to think of them that way. But first time in the last couple of years where when I do express a few critical thoughts, whether it's about Donald Trump or whether it's about Ron DeSantis, you know, my talks and the Q&As, it's usually 80, 20 praiseworthy, maybe not even 20 percent critical. But if it's 10 percent or 15 percent critical, I'm telling you, there's something different in these rooms, Sam. There's something different in our movement and party going on. People get very, very bitter about it in a way that I have never seen before. It's almost as if I've often used the expression, we should have open minds, but not so open our brains fall out. I feel we have some of that a little bit now that we didn't used to. Well, you're 100% right, Seth. I mean, I've seen the same thing going on. Um, absolutism is a really bad, um, really bad formula for politics because it, it, it forces people to lie to you, and that's a terrible thing. Yeah. So we need to get away from that. But we also need to understand um, it's, it's even more significant than the Reagan maxim. We may only agree with each other 80%. Yeah. But how much do we disagree with the left right now? All of it. Every single part of it. Every That's every it. part of the warp and woofa. Sam Stone, thank you for being with us as always. Uh, appreciate you so much. Thank you for your time. Seth, thank you as always. You betcha. I am Seth Leibson. I'll be right back. One of the things... Sam is uh, Sam was talking about and that I agree with wholeheartedly is a hardening in our culture of certain new cultural norms that have become absolutes that are going to be awfully hard to crack no matter who the next Republican president is. We need to win overwhelmingly. We need to take back the Senate. We need to increase our numbers in the House of Representatives. We need to increase our numbers in the state legislators across legislatures across the country and our governorships. When you think about how hardened some of these cultural silos have become that we are all forced to live in, and it's going to be the end of, the, of America. Uh, think of the stuff we sometimes talk about as DEI or DIE. I've seen it now both ways, uh, diversity in uh, inclusion and equity, diversity, inclusion and equity, D- diversity, equity and inclusion, however you want to say it. It's now done both ways. Uh, think about how ruinous this is to our country. We have been told diversity is so darn important at our college campuses and at our law schools and at our medical schools. And James Pearson raises an interesting point in Newsweek, very gifted intellectual. If diversity is so important as a goal, then how come the moment you get it at a place like Stanford Law, the effort is to shout it down, shun it, and keep it from expressing itself? If diversity is so important and you have the one guy in there who shares an opinion 
from the federal bench. He is a Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals judge. Um, one guy comes on campus for a lecture on a fairly anodyne issue that is in that is you know by volunteer uh, by volunteer participation, and they and they and they ride him out of town on a rail. What does that say about diversity? Or go to the Powerline blog today and look at this. If you haven't seen this, this is this is jaw dropping to anyone who's been to law school. I think it should be jaw dropping. This uh, in, set of interrogatories, this questioning Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana did with Cato Cruz, a nominee to the federal bench, uh, to the federal district court by Joe Biden. Um, John Kennedy asks him a question about a Supreme Court case known as Brady versus Maryland. He, call, he, he asks him how he would analyze a Brady, a Brady claim. And this judge, who I guess has been a federal magistrate for about five years, uh, had no idea what 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 Senator Kennedy was talking about. He confessed his ignorance about the Brady rule. He guessed that it had something to do with the Second Amendment because he was thinking of the Brady campaign to end gun violence. I have a practice law in over 20 years. Everyone who's went to law school knows what the Brady versus Maryland case is about. It, it's just one of those... I don't know if there is if there are 10 cases, but there are at least five that you just will always know if you were awake in law school. This guy was not clearly awake and not a legitimate nominee, except clearly, obviously, a box checking of nomination to the federal bench. This stuff is going to be the end of us. It's going to be the end of us. And that's why we have to win overwhelmingly, because these silos are hardening. Okay, a lot more coming up. We'll be right back.